0: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The images of 9-11 are seared our national memory, hijacked planes cutting through a cloudless September sky, the Twin Towers collapsing to the ground, black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon, the wreckage of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the actions of heroic citizens saved even more heartbreak and destruction. And yet we know that the worst images are those that were unseen to the world, the empty seat dinner table, children who were forced to grow up without their mother or their father, parents who would never know the feeling of their child's embrace, nearly 3,000 citizens taken from us, leaving a gaping hole in our hearts. On September 11, 2001, in our time of grief, the American people came together. We offered our neighbors a hand, and we offered the wounded our blood. We reaffirmed our ties to each other and our love of community and country. On that day, no matter where we came from, what God we prayed to, or what race or ethnicity we were, we were united as one American family. And around the globe, we worked with our friends and allies to capture or kill scores of al-Qaeda terrorists, including several who were a part of the 9-11 plot. Osama bin Laden avoided capture and escaped across the Afghan border into Pakistan. Today, at my direction, the United States launched a targeted operation against that compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. A small team of Americans carried out the operation with extraordinary courage and capability. No Americans were harmed. They took care to avoid civilian casualties. After a firefight, They killed Osama bin Laden and took custody of his body. For over two decades, bin Laden has been al Qaeda's leader and symbol, and has continued to plot attacks against our country and our friends and allies. The death of bin Laden marks the most significant achievement to date in our nation's effort to defeat al Qaeda. Tonight we give thanks to the countless intelligence and counterterrorism professionals who have worked tirelessly to achieve this outcome. The American people do not see their work, nor know their names. But tonight, they feel the satisfaction of their work, and the result of their pursuit of justice. We give thanks for the men who carried out this operation, for they exemplify the professionalism, patriotism, and unparalleled courage of those who serve our country. And they are part of a generation that has borne the heaviest share of the burden since that September day. Finally. Let me say to the families who lost loved ones on 9-11, that we have never forgotten your loss, nor wavered in our commitment to see that we do whatever it takes to prevent another attack on our shores. Thank you, may God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America.
1: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a really special guest on with me for this podcast. He's a former Navy SEAL turned author of the book, No Ordinary Dog. My partner from the SEAL teams to the Bin Laden raid, uh, Will Chesney. How's it going, brother?
2: Going well. How are you?
1: I'm good, man. I'm I'm glad that um, we're able to do this. So you just released your book. Um, that was on the 21st?
2: Yes. Released on the 21st, An Ordinary Dog. And that's available everywhere, right? Yeah, it should be available everywhere. And easiest place to probably pick up on Amazon. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay, awesome. So so we're going to kind of get into your story a bit, uh, We we'll talk about the book and, and all of that. Um, can we start with the beginning and um, what motivated you to join the Navy?
2: As a child, I just wanted to serve my country. I mean, growing up, I guess I was like that kind of stuff. Um, I can't remember exactly when I wanted to be a uh, SEALs, probably middle, high school. Um, yeah, I basically just wanted to serve my country. I love the water. Uh, I wanted to uh, test myself, and I heard that SEAL training was pretty hard. I wanted to be one of the best and see if I had what it took to make it through. And I guess since I love the water, I figured joining the Navy was probably my best option <laughs> so that's uh, kind of how it all started
1: and what sort of alerted you to seals and like what seals do was that like through books and stuff like that or movies
2: yeah i definitely read a whole bunch of books growing up uh, i guess uh, of course navy seals with charlie sheen <laughs> right classic movie <laughs> always watched that one. but yeah i read all kinds of books growing up about seals and yeah i think everybody did almost
1: Right, like probably like Vietnam era type of stuff.
2: Uh... Definitely. Everything I get my hands on.
1: <laughs> cool. So when you, um, when you joined, you went straight into Bud's?
2: Joined, went <clears throat> straight through boot camp, straight through A school. Uh, I got out to Bud's a little bit early. I got to um, spend a month, I think, about out there helping out with the class. That was going through third phase at the time. So it was really neat to get to spend a month there early and kind of see how things went down uh, and help out.
1: So I've heard from uh, like army guys um, going through uh, maybe special forces selection or uh, the Rangers uh, indoctrination program or, uh, you know, whatever it is they're calling it these days, that guys would sort of get to boot camp in really good shape and then um, you know, due to whatever kind of restrictions they have there, you know they have to follow a specific, you know, training regimen that they have going on in basics, and they sort of lose some of that high level of, of, of fitness standard that they had prior. Uh, but from what I understand, the Navy is really good at prepping people to go to Buds.
2: Yeah, during like a little bit of boot camp, I remember it was not getting in that much, shape, so I got a little bit of fat.
1: <laughs> I'm oh,
2: the Buds. Yeah, it was a boot camp. Uh, They had a program. You go to a motivator, a SEAL motivator, I forget, once or twice a week. Uh, So we had that, but didn't do so Towards the end of of Buds and then through my A school, definitely stepped it up quite a bit. Like I said, I got out to Coronado a month early and helped out. So I was around the compound, really training hard, getting ready.
1: Nice. And what Buds class were
2: you in? I was in Bud's class, 246. 246, okay.
1: And did you go straight through? Because I know a lot of guys experience some kind of you know physical injury that sets them back maybe to a, a different class or something like that.
2: Yeah, for sure that happens. Uh, I, I made it all the way through. It was 246 the whole time.
1: Okay, and can you talk about what team you went to after that? I went to Seal Team 4 after Bud's. Okay, and you were there for a couple of years before you then um, went on to sort of the next level?
2: Yeah, I did two deployments there. You know, uh, about three years, a little then I was um went to Dev Group, got selected, I made it through that with uh not too many issues, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so that yeah. So
1: budge is obviously a very difficult course to pass. I'm not sure what the exact percentages are, you know, of students passing, but I know it's pretty low. Uh, like 70-80%. Of failure. Failure, hell yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all SEALs are special operations, and it takes an uncommon sailor to make a career out of it. You know, deploying and fighting and pushing through injuries and that kind of thing. Um, as difficult as, as it is to become a SEAL, period— the next level of SEAL training, which is DEVGRU, is even more difficult. Um, can you speak to what makes trying out for a special missions unit so difficult, even for SEALs?
2: Yeah, it's uh, like they would describe it. It's like a another BUDS for SEALs, pretty much, except this one isn't based off of uh, putting up with a bunch of pain because they all know you're not going to quit, so it's all performance-based, basically.
1: Right, so it's not like a a crazy amount of physical training. It's probably more mental stuff.
2: Oh, there's a whole lot of crazy physical stuff, definitely. But that's how they they stress you out to see how you'll handle handle the mental uh, mental stuff. So there's a lot of physical stuff, that's for sure. I was in great shape by the time by the end of the course. But um, also, I mean, you're, nobody's ever going to quit that course. That really goes through it because you're already a bunch of Navy SEALs, so. <clears throat> A lot of it's performance-based, and they put you under very stressful situations and see how you handle it. Right.
1: So were you already at special missions when you became a dog handler, or was that before that?
2: On my first deployment, I saw how valuable the dogs were, so I started making myself more available, spending more time over there. And Eventually, the decision was made by, by my team leader that I'd be a dog handler when we got back from the deployment. And as soon as we got back, I went to dog handling school in California.
1: Okay, nice. Uh, So your book is about your experiences and your life in the teams, but it's also about your dog and your partner, Cairo. Um, When did you first meet Cairo and what was that experience like?
2: I first met Cairo at the command. Our trainers had just gotten back from a dog buying trip. So they had a kennel full of brand new dogs, and we were, or at least I was a brand new handler along with a couple other guys, and we had some master-at-arms with us that were uh, just coming in that completed their selection process. And we were all great, a new group of guys. The MAs obviously knew what they were doing with dogs more than we did, but we uh, had the dogs in the trailer. We all broke them out one by one. We all got to swap through the different dogs and interact with all their different temperaments. The trainers were not only looking at the temperaments of the dogs, but the temperaments of us and how we handled them. You know, you had, had the right fit, the right dog with the right handler. So that was the first time I can kind of remember seeing him. He came out around some, uh, we were doing some training at the command. and he came, he came out of the kennel and just remember getting the handle him for a little while. And I remember him sticking out in another dog named Bronco that I really liked.
1: And you mentioned the the masters at arms. Are you referring to the guys who were dog handlers who were attached to Devgoo as support guys?
2: That's correct. Yeah, okay. they were master armed dog handlers, and yeah, they attended the course with me.
1: Right. So the the um, you know for you guys, you guys were going out there with seals as dog handlers and support guys as dog handlers. Correct. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I've interviewed dog handlers from the special operations community before, uh, mainly guys from special forces. Uh, a couple of guys from Delta Force. Uh, I did an interview with a guy named Benny Olson. I'm not
2: sure if you're familiar with Benny. Um, oh, I know Benito very well. He's yeah, a great guy. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you know, he was he was one of those uh, masters at arm guys who was attached uh, over there. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, he's a great man.
1: Yeah. So. One thing that guys always talk about is how the dogs uh, do save lives on the battlefield. Um, you know, Throughout your time as a dog handler, were there any times where uh, you can remember that your dog prevented the death of an American on the battlefield?
2: Uh, definitely. No, <clears throat> he actually got shot before the bin Laden mission. It was uh, two guys took off uh, from the compound, set up in the ambush. Uh, I guess I can go into more detail. So two guys hopped on a moped, uh, and they were headed for a tree line. We followed them there. We basically, um, landed, did a call out. Nobody was listening. So we, uh, just escalated force. And then eventually the call was made to send the dog into the, into the tree line. I sent Cairo in and he was using his nose. He disappeared in the tree line as I was making my way, uh, down the line of my guys trying to keep an eye on him he just you know obviously he was so it was very hard to keep track of him i hear some gunshots and i knew he was in he was probably in a fight so i started to recall him and uh it took him a long time to get back to me or it was taking longer than normal so i figured something was wrong when we sent him in we had to send him in over a low like 34 foot wall And when they shot him, they they shot him through the chest and the leg. So we think that he couldn't hop back over the wall because his leg was broken. Uh, He ended up making it all the way around. Uh, I guess he found a break in the wall, and that's what was taking him so long to make it back to me. But eventually I saw him coming towards me, and uh, pretty much as soon as I saw him, he collapsed. And I thought he was dead immediately. Yeah, that was a pretty— rough feeling but uh i knew the guys there's enough guys online they had the firefight under control they didn't need me to go up there because that's you know first responsibility so I, I knew the guys had it I, I was able to get over to him and when i did i saw he was still alive so i started breaking out his medical kit uh, one of the medics one of the teammates one of my teammates uh heard that he was hit and by the time i had his medical kit out uh he was there he had been through 18 delta he uh i was ripping packages of gauze and handing them to him and he was or i was actually handing him the packages he was ripping them open as i'm getting uh cairo's vest off as soon as i'm getting his vest off he's got everything out and he's stuffing gauze into his chest and as soon as he's doing that i'm slipping on his muzzles it was pretty uh it was good teamwork uh it all kind of flowed pretty seamlessly considering the same the situation uh, I would say he saved Cairo's life that night, and then he was treated just like any one of us that would have gotten shot. Uh,
1: right?
2: They called in the Kaz- Kazavak bird. The helicopter pilots didn't care; it was a dog. It's, he's one of a, it's one of the teammates. So those guys immediately came in, picked him up, got him on the helicopter. Um, he was treated on the helicopter by medical personnel there as well, and then surgeons when we actually got back to our base, since there was no uh, veterinarian there. So uh, actual surgeons worked on him just like a soldier and they saved him. Got him stable enough to get to Bath. And then once we got to Bath there was a veterinary staff there that did an amazing job taking care of him through the night because it didn't I didn't think he was gonna make it through the night. He was looking he was looking really rough. Usually when the dogs get shot like that, they don't survive. Mm. We've seen it many a times. And especially with that large of a round, it's usually AK round. So he's seven six two round, right? It was a big round going through a dog. Right. It's a big round going through a dog. So I didn't think he was going to make it, but yeah, he pulled. He jumped back. It was pretty cool to see how fast he jumped back, and just uh, I mean, he, it wasn't immediate, but surprisingly fast. You know, considering he took a huge round through his chest.
1: So two two things I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, in a situation like that where a dog does get shot or wounded on the battlefield, is the the treatment, is it the same as if you're treating a guy who, you know, just got shot, you know, bleeding control, that kind of thing? Is it pretty much the same thing?
2: Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Just kind of different, you know, tourniquets on dogs. We have different ways of doing that since because of all the hair. Hmm. There's, we take special medical classes for the for the canine specifically. So we know right. what we're doing a lot of the, even if you're not a handler, a lot of the guys are still show up just so they can learn in case.
1: Right. Everybody tries to, you know, have as much training as possible. Right. right. So of course. So then typically when a guy gets hurt, uh, you know, depending on how serious the injury is and, and what the recovery time is, there's a period of time before you get back, uh, with, with your team. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's a similar process for the dogs, but in the meantime, um, are you obviously if you guys are on a deployment? I'm assuming you're going to stay and finish the deployment. Do you then work with a different dog, or do you just wait for your dog to get back to you?
2: So on that deployment, we had just lost another dog named Rimco on that night. It's a uh, Jimmy Hatch, yes, uh, Spikes K9 Fund, and Mike Tucson. Right,
1: right. Mm-hmm.
2: those those guys. We had so we had just lost Rimco, and Rimco was Mike's dog. It's an amazing dog, and it was a crazy night, but uh, since Mike had just lost Rimco, he met me in Bath, and he dropped off another dog for me to pick up, which, was, which happened to be Bronco. <laughs> and uh, I got to work with Bronco for a little bit. Cairo went to Lackland Air Force Base for rehab, and they took real good care of him. Uh, he didn't have any issues. You know, there's always the question when you get your dog back, it could be anything is he going to be scared of gunfire going out there and searching and you know anything uh, i never saw i never saw any uh, signs that he had been shot except for later on in life you could see a slight hitch in his step after he had run for a little bit
1: right so it's it's i guess it's very similar to humans as well um i guess people react differently to getting wounded and stuff like that
2: um oh definitely yeah Mike, uh, Mike Tucson brought me Bronco, and I stayed and finished out the deployment with him.
1: Yeah And for a situation like that where you you have to uh, essentially go on operations with a new dog, uh, do you have any contact with these dogs prior to that, or is that the first time you met Bronco?
2: I had handled Bronco a little bit during uh, when I first uh, met Cairo. So not not a whole lot of hands-on, but I, I did get to handle him a little bit. And Brent, Bronco was a, a very good dog. He was real friendly. He was pretty easy to handle. It was just me trying to get used to handling a new dog. And, you know, any issues that we had were totally my fault. Just it's a little bit different. And having Cairo shot wasn't the best, but we made it work.
1: So, you know, you, you mentioned something interesting when you said that you couldn't see any signs That Cairo was shot like that. Any signs that things were gonna be different, you know, that he would be afraid to do, you know, whatever it was that you guys were out there doing. Um, And what some people may not know is that the dogs, uh, like you guys, are essentially going through a selection process uh, to to get there with you. Um, Can you speak about any of that or, um, you know, what some of the training might be like pre deployment for you and, and your dog?
2: Yeah, of course, you just think about what you're asking of these dogs to do. They need to be able to skydive, rappel, fast rope, uh, go into dark rooms by themselves to get in a fight with somebody twice twice their (laughs) size. Um, They got to be comfortable in helicopters, slick floors, any kind of environment we might come across. Uh, just that alone, and then the drive to, for that dog to get in a fight and stay in a fight in that in those types types of s- terrible situations. It's not easy to find dogs like that, and then it's also I say when when people ask me what was different about Cairo is that uh to find a dog jo- a dog like that that it can actually turn it off and come home and become a family pet is not very easily. I mean, it's not easy to find those dogs in the first place, <clears throat> and then to find a dog that has that. And can turn it off and go home and kind of a house dog. You know, he's still a working dog, but he can turn it off and be friendly. It was really cool. But the selection process is very, very rigorous, and they can get washed out at at any time, for sure.
1: And when a dog washes out, do they stay in the military, or like what happens to a dog who's who's, you know, they decide he's it's a possibility.
2: Uh, stay in the military, give him to another uh, police station. It, it just depends. People find a good fit just depending on the dog's personality and where he's going, you know? Hmm. So you, you also mentioned something
1: that I, I found interesting is that Cairo was able to turn it off. Uh, I interviewed a guy who was one of the uh, the first uh, dog handlers for the uh, Army Special Forces Green Brace. And okay. um, so he was he was doing it for quite a while. And what he said was, you know, he trusts his dog with his life uh, when they're deployed and they're in combat, but he wouldn't trust his dog at home with his wife and kids if he wasn't there. Um, Oh, yeah. And and that has something to do with, you know, the dog uh, trying to assert its dominance and, and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, definitely. There's, like I said, there's not too many dogs, now that I look back and think about it, where I would. You know, obviously, all the dogs were great workers. They all they were all amazing. We made sure of that through the selection process and all the the amount of training we put into them. But now that I think back, which dog if I had a kid or brought them home, uh, there's not too many that I would trust.
1: Right, and, sure. and it's not because they're you know evil dogs or anything. It's just the no. the type of job that they're asked to do and training they receive. Uh, kind of puts them in a, a certain, I guess, uh,
2: mindset. For sure, I mean, these are working dogs. <clears throat> it's like I was talking with Mike Ritland yesterday about he has a foundation to get the dogs retired, working dogs, uh, a place for right. <clears> them. <throat> he houses them and tries to find them homes. People right. reach out to him, but they're uh, they're working dogs, and a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, they have to go into the right environment Or you're putting the dog into a bad situation you're putting people into a bad situation. And that goes with buying a regular Malin wall. I mean, those are working dogs. They have a lot of energy. You, need, you just need to know what you're getting into for sure. A lot of people, I guess maybe don't understand that.
1: Uh, so that, that program that Mike Whitland runs. So Mike Whitland is a, a, a former Navy SEAL and he was also a dog handler. Uh, and he has a, a fantastic podcast as well. Um, and you said the program helps put retired working dogs, uh, with families and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, he tries to do that or gives them a home. Some of the ones are a little more that have more problems that need to find a place to go. He takes them in and tries to take care of them. So that's really good stuff. Yeah. But sure. I guess some of the families that reach out don't really understand. Like, it's like, I can't give you this dog because, um, if they have kids and the dog's say the somebody knocks at the door and the retired dog is barking at the door and the kid comes up behind him and touches them or something and uh, you never know what might happen so right these are it's not their fault you know it's genetics and it's their training and they're they're amazing dogs so it's uh if they're able to go to a, a home some of them are you know a lot of them are towards the end of life they kind of calm down a little bit so they're able to go to really good homes i would say most of them it's just a very few like uh
1: yeah so after Cairo uh, went home, um, how long was it that you were working with Bronco? And then how long was it until Cairo was ready to go back to work?
2: As soon as I was done with that deployment, I uh, turned Bronco back over. And Cairo was still in rehab. As soon as he finished up rehab, he, uh, he was sent home. And I went over to the kennels and grabbed him the first day.
1: And then you guys were right back to work?
2: Yeah, right back to work. As soon as he was fully recovered, you know, we went out and started conducting training to see if he was, um, see if the injury had affected him at all in any ways. But he was good. He was fine. And Didn't you, said, the difference.
1: you said later on, you noticed that he had like a, a I guess, a limp in his walk. Um, was that apparent at all after, like immediately afterwards? Or that was just later on?
2: That's pretty much just later on, I think. I, I didn't remember seeing anything work-wise that ever bothered me. I think it was just a little bit later on, towards the end of his life, you could just see it at least more by then, you know, as the older he got, the worse he got.
1: So there was a um, an HBO documentary that came out, I think it was two and a half years ago or three years ago, um, called The War Dog, uh, produced by Channon Tatum, and they had was it three dog handlers on there, and they sort of highlighted their their stories and and their dog stories um one of them was a dog handler with the seventy fifth venture resident and the dog was wounded, I think it was in Afghanistan and um his wounds were of a severity where he wasn't able to deploy again with them. Um, And something ended up happening where he, at least according to him, where he thought uh, someone made a a verbal promise that he'd be able to take the dog home. Uh, But then what ended up happening was the, the dog went to a police department. And then once he was at the point where he couldn't do the the police work anymore. He retired with his dog handler at the police department. Um, is that something? So, based on what you were saying, I'm assuming you took Cairo home afterwards.
2: Yes, I took Cairo home. There was uh, he was a good dog. There's a couple other people that put in an application as well because everybody loved him. Uh, handlers usually get first choice, and that's a that's a terrible situation. You know, I don't I don't think we ran. Uh, we might've run across that as well, but, uh, nothing that I can remember in detail. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't really know what you can do. And I said, situation like that, you just kind of got to figure it out, see what the best fit is, but it's really terrible. I, knew, I didn't run into that problem with Cairo. Um, just put in the application for the approval process. It took quite a while, but at the end they had to do their due diligence and make sure Cairo was going to the proper home as well. You know, right? Uh, as soon as the process was done, I, I remember one day I got the call saying it was approved and I could take him home. And I took him home. It was great. I'll never forget that day.
1: And by the time you had taken him home, were you already uh, out of the Navy?
2: I wasn't. I was on my way out. I had gotten blown up in 2012. And after that, it kind of went, it never got, uh, it was never the same. Started getting re- migraines really bad, and my short term memory wasn't the best. It's um, drinking a lot. It was just, it wasn't a very good place. Uh, uh, my team leaders had seen that by then, and I had kind of addressed it as well. And you know, the call was made. I, I went through plenty of medical help. I went through NYCO and tra- saw a whole bunch of doctors and tried different modalities. It just, it was time for me to uh, to move on. I was I didn't feel like I could operate at the uh, level I needed to operate at anymore.
1: And, so, and uh, was that a TBI? By that time,
2: yeah, yeah, my hair had fallen out a couple of times. My alopecia, I think, the, you know, stress and I think the grenade explosions over time and uh, just all the stuff that we do. Right, you hit your head sometimes. All the overpressure from the blast from rockets and skydiving and I think that along with the booze and then the big grenade explosion. So I was having a rough time. So I was on my, on my way out at just going through all that process. And I was pretty sure I was, uh, I was getting close to the end of it by the time I got home. So it was a good time. It was, it actually worked out in my favor. Uh, he was such a good dog. They kept him around for quite a while because he was like kind of a plug and play dog didn't take if it was a fairly new handler you know you don't want to give him a problem dog he was a dog that you can give to pretty much anybody and you just let him go and he does his job um so they kept him around for a while but it worked out in my favor because if i was still working i wouldn't have been able to take him home and give him a good home so they probably wouldn't have approved me since i was in transition even though i was going through a lot of medical stuff they uh, they still approved it which actually helped it helped me out quite a bit just having him home.
1: Right. That probably helped you, you know, overcome your, you know, your situation. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: It helped quite. I mean, it was, I don't know what would have happened if I wouldn't have gotten him. It would not have been probably, it wouldn't have been good for my mental health at all. Right. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, that's another positive effect that the dogs have uh, not on just the handler, but on the team as well. Cause you said several guys put in applications to try and bring him home.
2: Yeah, Everybody on the team loved him. He uh, <clears throat> Even the do- the guys that were allergic to him would pet him, you know, so that I could take him around. So all the civilians on the compound loved him. I mean, he was just, he really wasn't really, he had terrible breath. I, I say it was his only problem. <laughs> it was that he had periodontal. He had terrible breath. And even the people like he would jump up in your arms and put his face right in your face and just <laughs> happy breathe right in your face. And it stunk so bad. But everybody was like, all right, I don't care. It's, it's Cairo. So, I mean, I Everybody loved him. He was a, <laughs> and when he came into working, he, it's amazing the things that he could do, and you know, it was great. All all those dogs are amazing. Just right. He had the he could turn it off. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. The uh, one of the guys who was um who was in that war dog documentary, uh, his mm-hmm. name is Dave Nielsen. I, I had him on the podcast several times. Really good guy. He was a um an operator at Delta Force, and um unfortunately the the night that the documentary highlighted uh, with his story and his dog's story was the night that his dog was killed. And um, they had lost a teammate the night before or two nights before, something like that. And, um, and he said his dog, the dog's name was pepper and she was, you know, they were in their compound or whatever, and um, everybody was feeling down, you know, cause they just lost a teammate, but she was able to like cheer everybody up and, and, bring up the overall mood and, and uh, the compound, you know, just by going to everybody and sort of hanging out with them for a few minutes. And um, and and that's just one of the little things that people probably don't think about uh, on, on what effect a, a dog has on the team or a special operations team.
2: The guy definitely has a good positive effect. I mean, even your dogs at home think about the effect they have on you. Right. It's uh, service dogs. So the, one of the reasons why I brought I wrote the book was – to tell Cairo's story there was some stuff out there that's just not correct uh it was a piece of history you know i I read books before i joined the military and if this can help people join the navy and want to become dog handlers or seals i mean that's this is awesome and uh i did that for that reason but also to bring attention to you know working dogs in general uh the amazing things that they can do the foundations that help them uh like mike's and spike's canine fund and all that um just to bring attention to it because they're doing really good things and it kind of it gives attention to not only working dogs, but what service dogs can do for you. <laughs> uh,
1: right. Cause people, you know, people use service dogs all the time. Like people who were never in the military or anything like that.
2: Yeah. My dogs kind of, I love having my dogs around. They just, if I get caught up doing something, uh, they kind of keep me, they just kind to take a second to take a wrap off and I guess be present in the moment with the dogs. Uh, especially after losing Cairo and I just lost one of my service dogs not too long ago named Hagen. You just never know when they're going to pass away. Uh, She died when she was six. It was a freak accident. Um, so these dogs kind of keep me in the moment. Sometimes I'm getting all stressed out. They'll come up to me and I'll just stop what I'm doing and take a second, get down and give them, give them some love to help. They can help. Uh, and then I kind of want to tell my story as well. Uh, just towards the end it's not easy for me to do but if some other veterans out there hear it and it can help them out as well then that's that's great uh i guess one of my biggest takeaways was towards the end i just didn't uh, reach out to people and ask for help if i was in a I was, I was in a real bad place uh, i was killing myself with alcohol basically uh drinking myself to death and one of my best friends named jared shaw reached out to me and uh he got me to go to a brain treatment center there's a got me in touch with a foundation called the brain treatment foundation and they're just awesome people. So we went through a couple of brain treatments and I I started feeling much better. Uh, The brain treatment foundation also got me on some supplements that I needed along with some other things. And between all that, I just, it's very glad I went. It was very beneficial to me because I don't know what would have happened if I wouldn't have went. And I I don't know if I would have went, if my best friend wouldn't have reached out, you know? So I think now's a good time to, you know, I'm gonna tell Cairo's story, and it gets to bring attention to what working dogs can do, and all dogs, and then maybe help some veterans out with brain health. If uh, if, my, if telling my story helps them as well, you know, to just reach out to people, and if if you know somebody that might be having a hard time, reach out to them. And there's good um, facilities, and there's good foundations out there that are able to help. You just have to um, ask, and there's there's a lot of people out there that'll help you.
1: You're right, there's tons of resources. Um... There is. So you mentioned, before you had mentioned NICO, can you just explain what that is to the the audience?
2: It's called the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. It's uh, basically a panel of of a wide variety of doctors, and you go there to spend uh, over a month, I forget exactly how long, but they, instead of you having to go to all these different doctor's appointments, it just kind of put you in one location so you don't have to go anywhere. It just makes things way faster. And they just try to, uh, with me and my TBI, they were just trying to figure out what was going on. And there's some great people there. Um, do some amazing things. And that was kind of my first step into the whole, I guess, really knowing I had a, I had something going on. And, uh, that was kind of my first treatment place I went to.
1: Yeah. I've, I've had guys on before who had gone through there. Um, Mm-hmm. and you, you did you also touched on it before as well where you spoke about uh, you know not only was it that particular situation where you were caught up in a blast but it's also the the uh overpressure, you know you guys are breaching doors and things like that um you're shooting rifles off in confined spaces uh you know the training is is very dangerous as well um you know without any combat involved just that alone is is pretty risky and and guys over the years have have died during uh, different kind of training accidents um you know
2: yeah that does happen every once in a while we're extremely safe i mean obviously the job like you said we do is very dangerous so if we're not safe then guys are going to get hurt all the time so it still happens you know and we learn from those mistakes
1: are you able to speak about that situation where you got injured or is that something you don't want to talk about?
2: I can give you a a basic rundown. Just, um, I had, uh, that was no longer a dog handler. I think it was my first operation, uh, not being a dog handler anymore. So it was back to being a shooter. Um, we went out to go hit a target one night on patrol in, uh, We we made it to the building, and my team leader told me to help uh, one of my buddies uh, move on to another building. Uh, There was a tight space. There was a tree line and then a ditch and then an open field, but the the space between the house and the trees was kind of tight, so I was going to wait for my buddy, help him. uh, I was going to wait for him until we could move together over to the new location. Uh, I was letting some guys pass by me. So I just kind of sucked up against the wall as tight as I could and I was waiting for everybody to go by. Uh, one of the guys stops and starts shooting up. So obviously they knew we, that we were there. Uh, I waited for him to stop shooting because I didn't want to bump him. And uh, as soon as he stopped shooting, I made my way out into the open field and... just was waiting for somebody just to stick their head up from the window. I didn't see anything and I... Everything is kind of hazy from here. Uh, I want to say I heard some glass breaking or something, and I don't know. All I know is it knocked the grenade went off behind me, and it knocked me forward. It didn't knock me out, but I was on my hands and knees, and uh, my lower back was extremely painful. Um, When I got up off the ground, I just uh, I didn't take cover. I think I was rocked pretty good because I wandered off uh, to the right a little bit, but I was still like out in the open, so they could just still engage me from the window if they wanted to. So I eventually kind of came to and realized I was in a bad spot. I made my way over to the side of the building where my teammates were. And, uh, it was the, the, the target building that where the bad guys were. And, uh, I heard one of my, my teammates, you know, he says, I'm hit. And I was like, shit, I'm hit too. (laughs) Uh, the man that worked on me, he, he was awesome. he, so I had a lot of pain in my lower back and I knew the grenade had gone off behind me but my, my I had taken some shrapnel on my face It sliced my face open and since you know your face bleeds a lot it was just you know he couldn't see very well and I was like I know the grenade went off behind me why is my face bleeding I didn't know if like some shrapnel went through my head and I didn't know how bad it was but it was you know concerning so I, the, the doc I went over to him and I, he checked out my face and It's like, now you're fine. It's nothing. And even though I asked him like three or four times, but. uh, Hey, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, hey, man, check (laughs) it out. Like. (laughs) Then he had me drop my pants right there. And so I was like, uh, pretty much face down, (laughs) ass up, on target. Oh, man, two forced gump wounds later. (laughs) Yeah, this would be (laughs) the. Called in the bird. My, they called in uh, me and two other guys had gotten hit by the grenade and they ended up getting us out of there, getting medical care. Everybody was uh, well. I went to Germany. One of the two of us went to Germany. One guy tried to stay behind, but he ended up having some TBI issues as well. I think so. Uh,
1: yeah. And was that your last deployment?
2: Yeah. After that, everything kind of went. Downhill. Like I said, my hair had fallen out a few times. It was after the loss of some very close friends, so it's not hard to figure out. That was kind of stress-induced, I would say. It's alopecia.
1: Right.
2: Uh, That, along with, the, I guess, all the other, like I said, all those small overpressure blasts over the years, I think just added up, and that was – you put booze on top of that and one big explosion, and my migraines were really – they were – pretty bad they were really bad um i think those were a lot of stress induced as well
1: right because so, be, being stressed out affects your physical health you know whether people realize yeah, that yeah. or not
2: yeah yeah i mean was, i mean again, i kind of think sometimes i would be thinking i was going crazy because i'm like what what, the, what is wrong with me like uh i used to be a navy seal pretty high at a pretty high level and now i can't really function function that well and uh, it's 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 kind of hard to put your finger on it when it's your own mind. And right. It's just it's frustrating. So uh, yeah.
1: So how many years was it where you were sort of, you know, going through these uh, periods in your life and and uh, you know getting some of the treatments? How long was it to where you felt at least kind of normal again?
2: I'm still working on it. Okay. <laughs> I'm Right. Uh, right. You know, there's there's all these different modalities, and I just, you know, I guess w- I went through all this stuff in the military, and when I got out, I just, uh, you know, things kind of wear off after a while. They don't work. I didn't want to take any medication, any migraine medication. I think those are all stress-induced, so I, after, I, I took a job immediately after leaving the military, which was a terrible idea. I drank myself out of that job and then um, kind of moved back home for a minute to take it easy and that's probably when I was at my worst. And then um, ended up finding a little place of my own. Uh, I tore my bicep not too long after I moved in, so I was sitting around a while. I started listening to uh, to podcasts. And I started listening about breathing podcasts and nutrition and stuff like that. And then I ended up going to that brain tr- the the brain treatment uh, <clears throat> foundation helped me out and between that she helped me out with some hormone therapy and some other supplements you know to we ran some different tests and try to get my blood work looking good and between that and the brain treatment i started feeling better and better and now i just try to educate myself like food is a big one trying to eat your diet is huge um it has all kinds of podcasts that have to relate to brain health and there's breathing and meditating so i just you know my morning routine if i wake up and i just try to at least get some breathing and stretching and meditating or praying, and you know what I'm saying? It's something, and then I'll start my day off that way.
1: And right, kind of get, I think get those,
2: the, all those things are get the positivity yeah. going like early in the morning, yeah. Definitely, man. Just get up and at least doing something. I feel like if I if I do some breathing or meditating, it's like you know, I find that very beneficial. I don't always do it, I don't always take my own advice, <laughs> but. And there's all different kinds of modalities to try. Like, I mean, even dogs—you know—those are a, a modality that can help veterans for sure. There's breathing, there's meditating, there's cold exposure, heat exposure. You, you can get deep into the weeds.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know guys who um who were in the military, and uh, they were they weren't dog handlers, uh, special operations guys, but they do have mm-hmm. uh, dogs with them now, and uh, you know that helps them sort of get through. Uh, you know, their days and and work through some of their issues as well.
2: Yeah. It's just another way. The dogs are an amazing tool, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, they're just like, they're such, they don't like think about the past or, you know, they don't dwell on the past. They don't think about the future. They just live in the present. Right. So they're just, you give them love and they'll give you love back. It's a good thing to have around.
1: Right. And they don't judge you and
2: (laughs) never judge you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So how long um, after you got Cairo at home when you uh, you guys were both out, how long did you have Cairo?
2: He survived about a year before he passed away. Uh, Stomach cancer. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, but we had a good year at home. I ended up getting a motorcycle with a sidecar on it, and oh, nice! Like were in the <laughs> we, old school, yeah, um... we took, yeah, like a Ural, and uh, it was great. He loved getting taking some rides in that. I, I had a boat at the time, so we would go hang out on the water, and we nice. had a really good year, man. We we spent some good time together. We ate some steak together. He got to sleep in bed, you know, all he wanted. It was a good year. I'm I'm blessed for the time that we had together for sure. Cause like you never know, man could have just passed away and I, could, I couldn't have had any time with him.
1: Right. What, yeah. how old was he? He was 10 years old. Okay. Is, is I mean, animals, like especially, um, you know, dogs and cats and stuff like that. They don't live too long anyway. I mean like you know, 10 years, yeah. it might be average or something like
2: that. I'm not really sure. Yeah. 10 to 15, you know, so 12 usually, uh, it was, he lived a good life. We, uh, you know, he hit it really hard for for the amount of stuff that he had been through. <clears throat> Ten, you know, he you know that's it wasn't twelve, but <laughs> he lived life to the fullest, so it was, it was good.
1: And how many years wish- did did you have him as a uh, as a seal?
2: So we got him when he was, um, I'd say, around three.
1: Okay, so you had him for a, a couple of years.
2: Yeah, you know, we, I worked him for a couple of years and then he stuck around the, k- the kennel for a while and then, and then retired at nine.
1: Okay. So obviously, you know, your book is about uh, Cairo, it's about your story. Um, you know, one of the, I would imagine, one of the, the culminating events in your life, uh, because of such a historic event, was the uh, Bin Laden raid. Um, are you able to talk about sort of the the build up to that and maybe some of that night?
2: I can give you a kind of brief overview. The so the book was sent through the approval process. It went through all the chains. It, it took a it took a while, but you know everything in there uh, you had to get approved. It's right. been through the whole process. So I don't uh, the book tells it all. So I can, I can give a, a, a overview of basically what our job was our job was to i mean you know utilize the dog's nose it's the biggest tool that they have that's why they're there so uh we were we did uh some perimeter sweeps when we first landed to make sure there wasn't any um escape tunnels or explosives around the perimeter once we did that i just made my way inside and tried to keep him into in um explosive mode because it's, it's hard once the dogs are on a bite, they, they love to find, they love to get in a fight more than they love to find explosives because their reward is bigger. Getting in a fight is a lot funner than getting a tennis ball. (laughs) (laughs) They love to get in a fight. So you, I I was trying to get him to find explosives. So, um, just, uh, working them on the first floor and the second floor, uh, just trying to find explosives, and um, yeah, I guess I guess let the book kind of tell the rest.
1: Right, absolutely. So, uh, you know, that, I thought that was interesting. Are you able to tell the difference, like if he's if he can sp- you know, smell a a tunnel, an escape tunnel, or it's a bomb? Are you able to tell the difference and what he's detecting?
2: Yeah, the dogs will throw a change in behavior. So <clears throat> we just worked together for so long that I was able to just just like the guys on my team, we we worked together so often that even in the dark I can I, I pretty much know who everyone is. Even looking right. at the back
1: Right, just how they're moving. So we work
2: like <laughs> right. Exactly. So I've worked with Cairo long enough and even the guys on the team worked with the canines long enough to where they have these subtle changes of behavior and, or every dog has like a tail, like Cairo. As soon as I saw him throw a change of behavior, I'd, I'd watch him. and So like he did a head turn or something that was pretty drastic. it would be like, all right, watch him a little closer. And, uh, he had this helicopter tail thing. If I saw his, his tail, like kind of doing a helicopter, <laughs> I knew he was, it was his like telltale sign. Like, all right, he's definitely on something now. And then I would watch him, you know, work at, to wherever he was going, to the source, and before he would get there, if I was able to, you know, I'd just recall him, and we would have a general idea of, you know, where guys were before putting us in harm's way or the guys in harm's way. If it was explosives, we didn't have to get close, and he didn't have to get close either. If if we were able to just kind of get the general direction, if that makes any sense.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. And um, so you said it, it. It was a little difficult. Getting him out of bite mode, like I guess the dogs get excited, um, you know, for a fight, like you said, and everything. Um, are there any? Is there a time that maybe you can share where he he
2: bit somebody? Yeah, his first bite. <clears throat> he, uh So we were on we were on the target, and it was we were doing a call out that night. We had. Been there for a while. We got some people out of the building. Uh, there was some guy in there, he wasn't complying. So we did escalation to force, and eventually the call was made to send the dog in. So I sent Cairo in uh, the main room or the middle room. It was just kind of a, a smaller kitchen room, I guess. And then to the left and right were two larger uh, bedrooms, I guess. Cairo went into the first room in the kitchen area. Uh, stayed in there for a second, shot over to the right room. And, uh, I guess during the call out, one of the women had left her baby in the room for some reason. Um, no big deal. Well, Cairo just, uh, you know, the dogs talk with their mouths. They'll go around sometimes and they get excited. Sometimes they'll grab pillows or something like that. Um, just Cairo went over and I guess he was doing the sweeps of the room and he went over and sniffed the baby, but he didn't, he didn't do anything to him. He just left him alone. It was pretty crazy. Uh, he shot over into the next room and immediately engaged the man that was being non-compliant, and it allowed us to take him into custody without getting anybody hurt. You know,
1: and a situation like that—is it difficult to get the dogs to to stop biting? Because I've I've seen like you know videos online of a usually like police canines. Um, and I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen every single time or all the time, but, you know, there's, the internet is filled with, you know, everything. So uh, I've seen some videos where the cop or the handler had a little bit of difficulty getting the dog off of the suspect or, you know, whoever it is they were engaging. Is, is that Has that been an issue for you guys at all in the past? Or?
2: It has. You know, different dogs have different temperaments, and some of these dogs are so high drive. Um, they wouldn't recall from a bite, which is a big deal because you want the dog to come back. Uh, you don't want to just leave the dog out there to to get shot. So, right. in those kinds of cases, we'll, we'll find probably a new department. Still a great dog, um, but maybe a police department that won't. We don't want the dog to getting killed eventually, just because he's a great biter and a great worker. We just know it's eventually going to end up bad, just because of what's happened in the past. So we've had dogs that were just you have a you know the. As long as you're able to get them up there and pull them off hard, you usually get them off no problem. I and mean, sometimes it's a little harder. The dogs have a, a real bite. But some dogs have a bigger, bigger problem, a way bigger problem recalling um, without being up close to them. But we, that's the, the only problem. Cairo didn't – he was pretty laid back and had a good temperament. I didn't have any issues with his recall. So, so some dogs when, we do.
1: when you're doing the recall, is that that's just you calling yeah. out to him basically?
2: Yeah, using an e-collar and just trying to get him to come back to me and certain people every some guys have different ways of getting them back, you know. You don't you can't just scream, so. Right, right, right. But, yeah. We use an e-collar to kind of get them back. Some dogs need it, some dogs don't. You can use the tone. Sometimes you just need a little bit of the e-collar. Not too much, just enough for them to come back to you.
1: Well that I means just thinking about it, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing on the dog's part because, you know, dogs, like, everyday dogs get excited, you know, when, when two or three people they've never met before come to your home, right, and they're kind of jumping around. Uh, so yeah. I can imagine what it's like you know, being, you know, hopping off a helicopter and, you know, firing rifles and, and throwing grenades and things like that. Uh, you know, the dog's ability to remain focused during all that sort of chaos.
2: Yeah, that's why the selection process is so rigorous, I would say. but uh, And they're, they're no joke. All these dogs are... Like on Cairo's first bite, I don't I don't think I mentioned it in the story, he ended up subduing the guy. And there's actually a couple of other women in the room. He's probably going to try to use his shields. But his bite was so bad, you know, I've seen some pretty crazy stuff over my years as a seal but i'd never seen anything like this i walked in the room and there was a big jello mold in the, in the corner I'm like, what is that and i go over to it and look uh and it was a congealed big glob of blood i'd never seen that in my life it was just from a dog bite he must have hit an artery and the medic ended up you know saving the guy's life we got to him really quick uh but it was just crazy to see how much damage a dog can do and and that's just one story there's there's so many dog bite and so many, like one of the things in the book is I Remember going to the team room, I was in the team room once for, and we said like, Hey, raise your hand if a dog has ever saved your life. And basically everybody in the team room raised their hand. Right. <laughs> and not only did they have a story where a dog saved, like we had multiple stories. Like we can sit there and just chat for all day long about, you know, dog saving your life. And, you know, you know this dog did that. And, so it's just crazy to see. That's, that's why I wanted to be a dog handler in the first place. Just from my first appointment, seeing the value of it, what they can bring to the table. I was, and it's like if I could save, I you was know, a dog guy. I love dogs. I wanted to make myself as valuable as possible. And if I could use a dog to save one of my teammates, then I was all about it. You know, I happen to like dogs, so not, not a big deal for me.
1: <laughs> right. And and, yeah. and these dogs are pretty special, so that's that's pretty awesome. Very so, special. yeah, I know they there's dogs where they're used like this dog is a bomb detection dog or this dog is a tracking dog. Uh, so basically, these working dogs combine several skill sets into one. Basically,
2: yeah, we we had a dual purpose, so he could find explosives or man odor.
1: I see. So is is that how, you know, like when you mentioned, you know, that you, you guys are sweeping the outside of the compound uh, looking for explosives or a tunnel, they, they would find a tunnel by smelling somebody down there, basically?
2: Yeah, you're uh, <clears throat> the longer the person sits there, you know, the, everybody has a scent, right? So your body's giving off a scent. Dogs' and noses are just amazing <laughs> what they can pick up as soon as they pick up that scent that they're trying to pick up they'll um if you train them properly they'll show you where the the main source of it is for whatever you teach them whether it's explosives or narcotics people um right right they use them to find children missing children from the tracking stuff it's just they're going to use their nose to track that scent and find whatever you ask of them as long as you train them the proper way and they can learn it you know right it's amazing
1: yeah i mean it, it really is and cool um you i've had uh i don't know maybe three or four dog handlers on the show before um you know different backgrounds different experiences and stuff like that um but it's i remember the first like the very first time i'd heard some of the details about the training and and some of that stuff uh it just blew my mind um you know what, what what these dogs are able to do and you know what they bring to the table and um even before I'd had uh, any dog handlers on, I'd had guys on uh, telling stories about how they were saved by a dog. Um, I remember one one story was uh, they were in Iraq and they were engaging a, a target house, at like, uh, I think it was like a, in a, in a farmhouse or something like that in the field. And uh, they, they pretty much um, killed most of the guys they were fighting with. And he was... Well, I don't remember if he was walking towards the house or away from the house. And um, one of the dogs just like dove into this, um, I don't know if it was a bush or something like that. I I think it was close to the Tigris River in Iraq. And, um, you know, so apparently it's like thick vegetation. So the dog kind of just dove into a bush and just bit the shit out of some guy who was uh, waiting with an AK. So, you know, had the dog not done that, that guy might have lit up, you know, him and several other of his teammates. Um, so ju- just hearing, you know, the enthusiasm okay. in his voice as he's telling the story, and 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 the respect that he has is pretty awesome. Um,
2: oh yeah, that reminds me of a story. We were um, <clears throat> it was target it was pretty much all done with. So it was secure, and you can you can relax a little, bit. you're still working, but um, still on your guard, of course. But yeah, everything is pretty everything has been gone through pretty thoroughly so uh we're checking things out <laughs> and all of a sudden i forget i forget which dog it is uh hops into oh he hops over a wall and into a, a big pile of hay where a guy was doing the same thing he was hiding with an AK, just waiting to pop out and start spraying guys and it's just crazy that hey where's your dog going just finds a bad guy that man how long have you been hiding in there who knows but Glad the dog found him before he could do anything.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and, and that definitely saved at least one life, if not multiple. You for know? sure, you
2: know it, at least
1: right. And um, so you know, obviously the special missions units, um, you know, whether it's the army or the navy, those units set the standard for, uh, you know, all kind of things and. Typically, um, new weapons and and, so, and maybe some tactics are developed there first before they sort of trickle down into the rest of the military. Um, I know some guys, like I said, I know I a know guy who was a Green Beret, and he was a dog handler. He was there for some of the, the very first uh, iteration of that canine program for special forces um but a lot of that comes from the the tier one guys first figure sort of figure things out and then it trickles down um the still teams they use dogs just as much as you guys are using them right
2: yeah they have their own dog program as well for sure everybody knew how valuable the dogs were just you know maybe some guys didn't see it at first from, from what i had heard uh They weren't incorporated when I was at Field Team 4 yet. But um, some guys can be stubborn. You know, know, they hear a dog and they just don't see how valuable the asset is until they see it in person, I guess. So I think maybe some guys might have been hesitant on believing, you know, what the dogs could bring to the table. So it might have taken a little bit longer, but they do have their own working working dog program.
1: Right. So how long uh, was it um – I'm sorry, when was it that you officially retired? So were you medically retired? Is that the proper term?
2: Yeah, I was medically retired um, in two thousand fifteen?
1: Okay, so not too long ago. Not too long ago. Okay. Oh. All right, cool. And how long were you guys working on this um this book? Was was this something that took a long time? Um I, I know the getting the, the thing vetted is is probably somewhat difficult.
2: Yeah, they, um, I think they were pretty busy. It just takes, it takes a while and it has to go through all the chains and um, it just takes a minute. So, after that process, you know, probably took about a year and then overall the whole process probably took three, maybe four years. It took, Oh wow. took a, a long time. You know, we've been working really hard on this for, for quite a while. I wanted to do it the right way and working with Joe Layden was awesome. He's, he's my Co-writer on the book did a fantastic job of helping me tell the story. Um, I definitely couldn't have done it as well without him. (laughs) If it's hands-on stuff, you know for sure I'm a little bit better. But when it comes to writing books, I think I should leave it to the professionals. Maybe (laughs)
1: right because you you, right the story is yours, and um, you know you have all this you know this information that is um, you know valuable and everything. But you need you do need a pro to sort of put that, you know, pen to paper and, and make it sound, you know, good, I guess?
2: He makes it sound very, very good. Um, it's not easy telling the story either. There's a lot of personal stuff and the loss of friends. I don't, I don't dive too deep in it. I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's, some of that stuff was hard to cover, the things that would, me and Cairo had been through. and you know, So it was good to have him there to help write it, and he did an amazing job. I think what we have is great it's a piece of history it's like a navy seal marley in me (laughs) like i i tell people like i dare you to try to read it without crying it's it's a pretty if you're a dog lover i think everybody's gonna really enjoy it and like i said it's it does multiple things it it gets the piece of history out there it gets the truth out there it can bring attention to all these dogs and it can you know if i I can help other veterans by putting my message out there as well then i don't know in what capacity i'm going to help as of right now but I'd like to hope in some way.
1: Well, sometimes you, you're not, you can't uh, sort of quantify the value of something. Um, and I know just because I've had, I've talked to guys about this, uh, just listening to someone I've had on the podcast, uh, you know, they reached out afterwards and said, you know, just hearing that guy talk about things that I'm currently going through, like, sort of set me on the right path to recovering or, or at least getting better, you know? So, um, it, it definitely has an impact. I, I know for sure someone who is going to listen to this is going to, you know, think about how they can get better, you know? So, um, I really hope so. Yeah. It's, I it's that's super how I started. Him. Yeah.
2: It really is. Yeah. You know, just listening to a podcast and start learning about these different things and just hearing somebody else is like, well, I'm not the only one, I mean, there's a lot of veterans that are committing suicide, and, you know, that's a terrible thing. If I can tell my story and get guys to maybe reach out to a friend or – anyway, that's, you know, very important to me. Um, I'm telling Cairo's story anyways, so if I can do some good things with it, then that's what I'm going to do. Are you guys
1: uh, doing an audio book as well, or is it just the hardcover and ebook?
2: There is an audio book as well that I read myself. Oh, nice! So, yeah, I hope people. I hope it was worth it. You know, hope people enjoy my voice and me reading it. So,
1: yeah, some people are like, um, like some people hate hearing themselves. Um, yep. <laughs> so, so, I've heard of guys like, and not just military guys doing books, but just in general where they would like they attempted to do the audio book. And they hated hearing themselves so much that they just paid somebody to to uh, you know narrate it.
2: That's funny. Yeah, I don't love the way I sound, but I'm, I hope I did well. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoys it. Put a lot of work into the book, and Cairo really was a great dog. I mean, it's a piece of history. I hope. I hope I did him well, and um, I hope people can take some things away from it.
1: Well, some some people actually prefer, they, they like like audio over
2: reading, you know. Oh, definitely. And another thing was you um, <clears throat> go through this whole process. St. Martin's um, thought the book, they liked the book and they thought it could reach uh, younger kids. So they did a young adult version spinoff of it and uh, just to kind of get the message across to, to kids of what, you know, kind of what, what the military is and what working dogs can do. Well, that's I thought pretty that was neat. really cool.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I was at the, I donated Cairo's Vest to the 9-11 Museum. Oh, wow. And while I was there, I was talking, yeah, it was, it was a, a great honor it was um yeah I'm so happy to be able to do that a lot of people have seen it i think um but while i was there i was talking with one of the people that uh helped run that thing and he was explaining to me of kind of how well number one kids these days don't really know what 9-11 is it's been it's been quite a while right. I, I didn't even realize you know it's like oh yeah i guess it, For them to come into the 9-11 Museum, what comes across like, because it's hard for them to understand maybe sometimes, for them to see, you know, some boots from, like, a firefighter or a helmet that kind of gets the message across of what's happening, you know, and I guess a dog, anything dog-related, so seeing a dog's vest and hearing about a dog might get the message across, you know, as well. So that was really cool to hear him say that. It never really clicked in my mind. It's like, oh, that's awesome. And uh, I hope the same thing does, it does the same thing with kids in the young adult reader version. I hope it's a good way for children to learn about what what the working dogs can do and a little bit about the military. I mean, like I said before, I read books that made me want to serve my country and join the Navy. And I'm so glad I did. I grew up in a trailer park in Southeast Texas. (laughs) You know, uh, I wasn't going to go to college. So the Navy, it's like the best thing I ever did and if this can get some other people to do the same thing and that'd be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I know there's some pushback on, on books and stuff like that from the community, but you know, just as you illustrated, I mean, uh, a lot of guys, um, you know, who I have on are like in the 35 to 45 age range, um, special operations guys and almost all of them if not all of them have told me that they were inspired by books that were coming out from the guys who served in vietnam so it's like if if these books can inspire an entire generation of um special operations guys why not you know
2: yeah i'm sure there will be guys that are not happy with me i i have the best intentions in in mind i Everybody loved Cairo, and like you said, people read books um, before they join. I wanted to tell the as respectfully as possible. Um, you know, still, you're still going to have some guys that are not probably not going to be super happy about it, but uh, I right. just hope they know I have the right intentions in mind. I, I want to bring attention to, to people that are doing great things for dogs too, as well. You know, like Jimmy Hatch. Getting a bulletproof vest for them that spikes canine funds, that's amazing stuff. Those dogs are such a valuable tool. Um, and then also telling my brain health, I think that's very important to me. I have uh, i don't think I pulled my weight there at the end of my career and I wasn't feeling so great and feeling a little bit better these days. If I can contribute again, get back into the fight, then I definitely would like to. Um, I
1: mean, so, how, but, how long were you a SEAL
2: total? I did 13 years in the Navy, and you know, I made it straight through boot camp and BUDS. So, you know, a year and a half, two years of training, so 11 years as a SEAL. So.
1: And how many years at uh, DevGrew? Eight years. And that that's, I mean, thinking about, you know, how much deploying and stuff you guys are doing, that's, that's quite a long time, um, you know, especially with the amount of... Yeah, I
2: thought I would retire. Yeah. But don't always work out the way you want, huh?
1: Well, I, I guess uh, for guys who do make the 20-year mark, um, I mean, some of it has to be a little bit of luck, right? Because, it, you know, uh, there's situations where one guy steps on one spot, and he steps away, and he's fine. The next guy steps on that spot, and he gets shot and killed, you know? So it's like you, no matter how much training you have, you can't control that Um or you know, or or there's a an I you know you guys are driving along with something and a, you know run over an ID or something like that. I mean there's there's so many variables and so uh, luck definitely plays a part in that because you know I know guys who who did twenty and were only you know received a a small wound on one deployment uh, you know like a shrapnel wound or something like that and then there's people who get you know, terrible injuries on their very first deployment. So it's just, you know, it's just sort of what, yeah. how it is. right?
2: Oh, yeah. You just... Sometimes it does happen. You never know. It's always like a... Kind of one of the messages during all this quarantine is just take the time if you can to be present. You never know when you're going to lose somebody, you know. Just try yeah. to be present with the people you love when you can.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole quarantine thing is crazy. I mean, I live in Manhattan, and and New York is just getting rocked right now, you know, so. I can only imagine,
2: but, man.
1: So, do you guys have a a website for the book, or is it just, you know, get get the book where books are
2: sold? Um, The quarantine has made things a little uh, different, like, you know, the publishing company, St. Martin's, is in New York, so we're... They're having to deal with some issues as well. But right now, Amazon is the best place to go and get. I think you can get it all in bookstores. We haven't set up a a website quite yet, but I think we're in the process of doing so. And uh, yeah, right now, Amazon would say.
1: Well, actually, that's I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's something I thought about before the podcast. So, with this whole quarantine thing, did that affect your release date, or you know, did you guys have to change anything, or?
2: Yeah, I was supposed to do the release at the 9-11 Museum. Uh, like I said, those people are there. They're awesome. They did a great job putting together the, the whole Bin Laden display, the Hunt for Bin Laden display. Definitely go check it out if, you're, if you haven't. Uh, but we're supposed to do the book release. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're supposed to do the book release there, just the whole quarantine thing, just shut it down. So we're making it work. We're pretty much doing everything from home. Uh Saint Martin's is in you know, they're dealing with the stuff since they're in New York as well. So but we're making it happen. We're making it work and eventually once all this does pass that we'll get through it and we'll do a another official release at the nine eleven museum and hope I'm hoping and, and get out there and I think a lot of people want me to sign books, so I'm working on getting out there and doing it and figuring out how to get it done.
1: Yeah, that'll be awesome. Um you yeah, know that that place is um you know it's tough not to get emotional going there. Um, yeah, and it's so it's so weird the uh, the first time that I'd gone there. Uh, so I'm I I'm also a photographer. So there was a day where I was just sort of walking around the city with my camera, and I was near the area. So I said, let me just go over there and, and take some photos and stuff. And um, I got there. I was taking some shots of the building. I, I wasn't looking at the, you know, they have that that stone with all the names on it. There's two of them where the um, mm-hmm. where the buildings once stood. And I'm just right. taking these pictures, and then I just I, I done uh, finished taking the pictures of the buildings, and I looked down, and the first name that I saw was a name of a guy I knew who was killed in the towers. And um, oh, really? Yeah, it was the weirdest thing. I took a picture of it. It was the 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 absolute weirdest thing. And, um, you know, especially for New Yorkers and people who were alive when it happened. Uh, You know, I I think most Americans or people around the world, it's, you know, it's one of those events where you remember what was happening when it happened, you know? Um, Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's it's crazy because um, before this whole quarantine, I had um, reached an agreement. um, So Spotify has podcasting studios in one of the World Trade Center buildings so I would reached an agreement to where um, I can use their studios at the World Trade Center so we we're gonna switch platforms and, and do all this stuff to sort of uh, cause right now the podcast is just audio so we wanted to you know sit down with people and record that way and get some visuals out and then uh, this whole this whole thing happened and that just shut everything down you know so kind of bad timing but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. All right, cool, man. That's crazy. Um, it, it was uh, it was fantastic talking to you, man. I, I really appreciate you doing this. I'm sure, you know, the book release. You, you know, you're doing a bunch of media and stuff, and I, I know that stuff is not uh, not always easy and can be exhausting. Um, so I really do appreciate you doing this, man.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's you know it's pretty new to me. Not used to doing all this media stuff, but I
1: think right. So. I'm,
2: I'm sure it's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I hope everybody enjoys the book and I hope it, I did it write kind of and get through these podcasts.
1: And yeah, for sure, man. See um, what I can
2: do, get the right message out there.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you, you guys are doing a, a great job. And, um, you know, regardless of whatever people think, most Americans appreciate the book and, and uh, you know, everything you guys have sacrificed and done over the years. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for coming on again and thank you for your service as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I appreciate. It. I hope, like I said. I, I had a friend call me who had lost a, a few buddies at the trade towers, and he he's a big dog lover. He called me the other day, and he was you know he was very emotional about it. So um, I think it was beneficial for him. Out. So yeah, hope I did right on the on telling the story, and I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for taking the time.
3: The news of Bin Laden's death brought celebrations to the streets of the United States. But it also haunted the world with memories of a clear September morning a decade before, when the streets of America were choked by terror. That mystique and that legacy goes way, way back to even Vietnam and before, you know. The enemy knew the men in green faces. or If they were coming for you, you weren't coming back. Since World War II, SEALs and their forefathers have faced whatever threat the enemies of each generation have posed. From Hitler's beaches to Bin Laden's terror. While the perils have changed and will continue to, The invisible men behind the face masks still claim a common heritage and future. No matter how sophisticated they or their foes become, they are simply frogmen.